Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Let's pray together. Once we were darkness, Father, and now we are light in the Lord. Light in the Lord. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel. But on a lamppost, a stand, that it may give light to all in the house. So let your light shine. That men may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father. Oh God, I pray that the upshot of today's message and worship time in song would be the shining of the light of your people into the darkness of abortion and all the deception that sustains it. Lord, come, I pray, and fill us with sacrificial, loving, good deeds that men may see and give glory to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, here we are, 30 years after the Supreme Court, not the Supreme Court, who is Jesus alone, but the Supreme Court of our land, decreed that taking unborn life will be constitutionally protected until the day of birth. Thirty years. 
1982, the Senate Judiciary Committee wrote, quote, No significant legal barriers of any kind whatsoever exist today in the United States for a woman to obtain an abortion for any reason during any stage of her pregnancy. Close quote. And since then, that means there have been about 40 million abortions in America. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that about 43% of all women in America, by the time they are 45, will have had an abortion. 20% of these will be teenagers. 50% will be repeat abortions. Almost every third baby conceived and viable will be taken by abortion. The vast majority of abortions are done between the seventh and tenth week of gestation when the baby is now sucking his thumb and recoiling from pricking and responding to sound and all his organs are present and the brain is functioning and the heart is pumping, the liver is making blood cells, the kidneys are cleaning fluids, there is a fingerprint His genetic code is uniquely and unquestionably human, and if we are willing, we may see pictures of him alive by ultrasound. There's a new book that was just published. In fact, it's got a 2003 date in it, um, Answering the Call by John Enzer, uh, published by Focus on the Family. I think Dobson has been highlighting it. Uh, this book has a special relevance to me because John Enzer, the author, was a student of mine at Bethel, and I did the wedding for him and his wife, and I have watched him move from the pastorate to be the most remarkably uh, powerful, successful, forgiving, loving, kind, pastoral pro-life leader in New England, having founded five crisis pregnancy centers called A Woman's Concern And I read the entire book on Friday. I've never read a book in one day in my life. I'm so slow, but this is a very short book, and it has big print and a lot of white space between the words. And it goes very fast, and it is a very powerful book. And uh, we'll get some, but we couldn't get them soon enough for this morning. But the reason I hold it up is not to advertise it, but to quote from it. He says that one in six abortions are done on women identifying themselves as born-again Christians. 31% of abortions are done on women who call themselves Catholic. In his own church, before he became a full-time leader in the pro-life movement, he said he discovered 30% of the women in his church had had abortions. He concluded like this, Indeed, the abortion industry could not survive financially without paying customers drawn from the church. And I put big exclamation points in the margin on that sentence. Well, all of these facts bring me now to a position where I come uh, once a year for the past many years and make me know 
know all the more now this year than ever that I have two things I need to say. And I pray that you'll hear both of them. One, I need to say a word of forgiveness and a word of hope from God. I need to declare a gospel word of forgiveness and hope for the, how many? I have no idea, downtown and here, how many dozens of women and men are post-aborted. But no doubt in this room, many. And no doubt in that room, many. And so you are in need, desperately in need, even if you don't feel the need of a strong gospel word. And the other thing I need to say is the moral outrage of abortion. So let me say those two things one one at a time. First, a strong, clear, powerful gospel word for sinners like us. And it goes like this. I take it from Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Now hear this, O brothers and sisters. Through this name, that is Jesus Christ, through this name, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And in Him, in Him, Everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified in the law of Moses. Hear this, all you brothers and sisters. Through this name and through this man, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And in Him... Everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified in the law of Moses. In other words, in Jesus Christ and through the life and death of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness for all our sins, there is pardon for our iniquities, and there is a provision for our righteousness And if you wonder, how can this be? How can I, who had multiple abortions, I haven't even confessed this to anybody. How can this be that all my sins could be totally wiped away and I could be provided with a righteousness with which I could stand before a holy Just and loving God. How can this be? And the answer is, Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners and rose again, triumphant over hell and sin and death and Satan and guilt and condemnation and everything that could keep you as a sinner from God. And therefore, I offer you this powerful word of gospel hope. Through this man, forgiveness is proclaimed to you. And in him, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified in the law of Moses. And I commend to you. 
receive that gospel. So that you will be able to say and feel amen to what I'm about to say. And not hide. And not run away. So the second thing I have to say is, abortion is morally outrageous. Fatal to children. Destructive to women. Corrupting to men. Debasing to culture. Mangling to reason and language. And worst of all, an assault on King Jesus Christ. Through whom all things are made. Wednesday, lead editorial in the Minneapolis Tribune. said that the issue of when fetal life becomes protectably human, no one knows. I never heard the phrase protectably human. That's a very interesting phrase. Protectably human clearly signifying there's another kind of human. Which is a very significant thing, both for the beginning, the middle, and the end of human life. They said that Harry Blackman, the author of the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, had said and spoken to this issue better than anyone has been able to speak to it in the last 30 years. And here's what he said. We need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus, the judiciary, at this point in the development of man's knowledge, is not in a position To speculate. Now, what's the flaw in that sentence? The flaw is that while claiming to withhold judgment on the issue, the judiciary not only speculated, but authoritatively decreed on the issue. Namely, it is not murder or manslaughter to destroy unborn life. That is not a suspension of judgment. It is a decisive judgment. Namely, in the womb, there is nothing worth protecting. To portray this, as the Tribune does and Blackman does, as a sensitive suspension of judgment about the status of the unborn is false and deceptive.
how do you get from we do not know whether this is protectable human life to therefore we will not protect it and you may destroy it. Would not the logic just as likely be, in fact, would not millions of us say, vastly more likely be, we do not know whether it is protectable human life, therefore we will protect it. Why does the judicial uncertainty about the humanity of the unborn lead to unbridled license to destroy it? There's an answer to that. And it was stated by Justice White and Justice Rehnquist in their dissenting opinion. They saw it clearly, what was happening. And they wrote it eloquently 30 years ago. This is what Justice White wrote with Rehnquist consenting. The court apparently values the convenience of the pregnant mother more than the continued existence and development of the life or potential life which she carries. I can in no event join the court's judgment because I find no constitutional warrant for imposing such an order of priorities on the people and legislature of the states. There it is. Order of priorities imposed by judicial decree upon the people of the United States and the legislatures of the states. What order of priorities? When you say, we don't know, if it is protectably human. Therefore, you may kill it. All they're doing is saying, we order priorities, mother's convenience above possible life. Justice White and Rehnquist said, in no way could I endorse such an order of priorities. This is not the Tribune notwithstanding and Blackman notwithstanding a thoughtful, delicate, sensitive suspension of judgment in the face of pluralism and ignorance. This is a radical judgment against the unborn. Call that life what you will. It has been condemned. Now, I am a Christian pastor who wants to be biblical and does not give a rip about being Republican or Democrat. Those things mean almost nothing to me. The will and the glory and the rights of Jesus Christ mean everything to me. And he is the king of all and the judge of all. So why have I begun the way I have with the newspaper? And the answer is, 
we didn't begin with the newspaper. We began with Ephesians 5, 1 through 16. And I took my cue with regard to the newspaper from verses 10 and 11, and I invite you to look at them with me. Try to discern, O Bethlehem, pastor, elder, doctors, lawyers, nurses, all Christians. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what I've been trying to do. In quoting the Star Tribune, I want to expose the fruitless works of darkness. Abortion is one of the most manifestly fruitless works of darkness human beings perform. And it is sustained and supported by the darkening of reason and the darkening of language in the Tribune and in almost all pro-life, I mean pro-choice literature. Verse 8 to 14 calls Christians to expose darkness by being light. Let's read these verses. They are very powerful. Let them have an effect on your lifestyle. Let them have an effect on your reason for being. You are light. You are light. Do not put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand in this culture of darkness. Verse 8 For at one time you were darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you and you'll be light. Awake, O sleeper. And Christ will give you light. Awake, Bethlehem. And Christ will shine upon you and you will reflect his light. In him you will be light. And oh, the world will change. Jesus said something similar, didn't he? I think Paul is meditating on the words of Jesus. I think many of the things in the epistles are very deep and profound meditations on the words of Jesus You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its flavor, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand that it may give light to all in the house. Let your light so shine that men may see your good pro-life deeds on behalf of mothers. And children and fathers. And give glory to your father in heaven. 
true followers of Jesus, and I don't say this about the church visible, I say it about true followers of Jesus, are the salt and light of their culture. And we often puzzle over that salt. Right? We, we get into a Sunday school class, a small group. What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? And there'll be these competing suggestions. Well, I think it means the, the, the savor and the flavor of radically loving people. It tastes so good in a, in a loveless, self-serving culture. Yes. Or another might say, I think it's what salt does on meat. It preserves it, keeps it from decaying and rotting away. And those two go back and forth. If you would ask me, which I think it is, I would say probably the former in context because of what comes just before, but certainly not excluding the latter. If you are a saver unto life and you are awakening people with the tang of radical, lay down your life, sacrificial love so that they awaken to, whoa, this tastes good. Christ must be great. God must be good. Christianity must be a banquet table of delights. If that's happening, preservation will happen too. There'll come a moral stability in the culture where that's happening. But you know what? We don't as often puzzle over the second image after salt, namely light. I suppose one of the reasons is because Jesus interprets that one for us. He doesn't leave us with the metaphor. He tells us, let your light so shine that men may see your, tell me, good deeds or good works, depending on your version. But is that all? Light is, or what are they? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and thus give glory to your Father in heaven. Paul agrees with this, right? Paul is not in a different place from uh, Jesus here in Ephesians 5. He says that you are light in the Lord And he says that the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Those are the good deeds Jesus is talking about. But Paul says one more thing. Jesus doesn't say, drawing out an implication that Jesus, though he didn't speak it here, was really good at it everywhere else. Namely, light exposes darkness. See that in verse 11? Expose them. Don't participate in the works of darkness. Expose them. Show them for what they are. By being light. Being light. Move up to darkness with your light and something happens to darkness. It gets light. Bugs fly. Mice run away. Deception can be no more. You don't stand over here and and lob criticisms over there into the dark merely. Your little little light bombs that carry the light, they just boom. And the darkness hears them and despises them. You move toward the darkness and it becomes light. One of the reasons I put the addresses and phone numbers and websites of the five abortion clinics 
in the star last week, if you haven't gotten it yet, you will, was so that you could call them on the phone. Maybe a miracle would happen and they'd let you come in and talk to a doctor or an administrator about the gospel. Maybe. Or you could send them letters. You can move your light toward the darkness. Abortion is one of the darkest works of the human race. And the only way it survives is with darkness and deception and lies. And wherever the light of truth and love come, darkness flies away. And therefore, it is a great calling of a Christian to do both things, to let your light so shine that good deeds of pro-life happen and the light of speaking and writing, phoning, emailing, articulate words of light and truth into the darkness. Now, this gives us some clear guidance as a church, I think. I say, Bethlehem, let there be the light of good deeds, the manifold ministries of crisis pregnancy center involvement and adoption involvement and sidewalk counseling and education efforts and political engagement and let there be the loving, bright analysis, critique, exposure through reading and thinking and conversing and writing. And, of course, they can't be separated, can they? The, the exposing of the dark and the doing of good deeds because the more love and the more bright, clear, sacrificial, risk-taking, loving, woman-supporting, man-holding-accountable, child-saving actions there are, the more darkness will flee away. Just as much as writing and talking. Now, I wish there were time to talk about three more parts of this text that relate to abortion. Uh, but I want to get to some concluding exhortations and practical admonitions. But I'm going to tell you the three things that I would spend another half hour on if we had it. Uh, and it'll take me five minutes to do this. So these, this is my five-minute replacement for another sermon I would love to do on verses 1, 2, and 3. So point from verse 1. Look at Ephesians 5, 1. Be imitators of God... As loved children. That look relevant. God loves us as his children. Imitate him in that. That's relevant. Really relevant. As beloved children of God. Imitate God. Love your children. God loves His children before they ever come into being. That's what we're studying in Romans 9. God loves His children in the making. He even calls them in the womb. God loves His children on the earth. God loves His children forever and ever in the kingdom. And therefore, Bethlehem, love your children. The idea of that. Love the idea of them before they exist. 
Love the coming into being of them. Love their existence on earth and love them into the everlasting kingdom. And let me just say a word now to children. I want to say, as a pastor, an elder, a a part of the team here at Bethlehem, we love you. We pastors love you Children, we are glad you were born. We are glad you were adopted. We are glad you are alive. We would like to spend forever and ever and ever with you. We are so glad you come to this church. We love you, children. You parents remind your children that I said that. And please mean it with me. And the second thing I would say if I had time to preach another sermon is verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So now first imitate the Father in his loving you and now imitate Jesus in his loving you. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How did God love his children? He he loved his children by giving his son, sacrificing his son. And how did Christ love us? He loved us by dying for us. This is the opposite of abortion. To die that we might live is the opposite of killing that we might live differently. This is the opposite And therefore, let us learn from Jesus how to love the weak. Romans 5, 6. While we were yet weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Oh, the weak, the voiceless. And will they be voiceless in July? When January is gone with all of its reading and reflecting and websites and marching, will they be voiceless in February already and August and October? Will we just go about our business saying nothing, doing nothing? I pray not, because Christ died for us when we were weak. Christians ought to be the most Vigorous defenders of the weak because we were so loved in our weakness. And the third thing, verse 3. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Take those two things. Sexual immorality and covetousness and put them together. And you have two of the most massive powers of American culture. Sex and covetousness. And they produce abortion. Sex doesn't produce abortion by itself. And covetousness doesn't produce abortion by itself. It's the two together that produce abortion. Sex is good. Desire for right things is good. It's desire for wrong things called covetousness and illicit sex or legitimate sex mingled with covetousness so that you can be married, conceive a child 
and mingle it with covetousness and still produce abortion. If we could, could conquer covetousness and illicit sex, abortion would be no more. Well, those would be another sermon. Let me close with five suggestions for how you can move on this. Number one, consider adoption. I know that doesn't relate to everybody in the room, but it relates to a lot of you. Consider adoption. God has overwhelmingly blessed this church with a vision and a reality of adoption. The microphone, M, minority, infant, child, adoption, help, founded about 12 years ago in this church, has now assisted in the adoption of 211 children in its 12 years of existence. The Lydia Fund, much younger than her older sister, the Micah Fund, Lydia, let youths be delivered from institutions by adoption, with a focus on international adoption, where most of the orphanages are, has now helped in its short existence with the adoption of 37 children internationally. Pray about this. I was 50, so you got no excuse. Unless you're over 50. But maybe that shouldn't be an excuse. I was in Macon addressing a adoption agency fundraising banquet, about 900 folks. And uh, that night, they brought out on the floor one three-day-old baby. I forget how old the other one was. Two little babies. They were gorgeous. They weren't quite my color. And they were available. If I hadn't been 56 years old, Noel and I would have brought them home. We would have brought them home. So pray about adoption. It makes such a powerful statement and keeps life flowing, keeps the movement flowing. Secondly, be a regular giver with your money. Set your lifestyle lower and be a giver of money to crisis pregnancy centers. Let me give you an illustration from John's book here. In a women's concern in Boston, they invested, because of the generous gifts of supporters of the pro-life movement and the crisis counseling centers, in an ultrasound machine. The effect was that the percentage of women choosing life jumped from 30, 35% to 76%. In the first 18 months of using the machine, 329 women chose against abortion. John estimates that cost the abortion industry about $148,000. Now think of the finances here. Think of the investment. You invest in this Expensive machine, perhaps not very expensive. I don't know how much they cost. And the effect was you not only fund life, you defund abortion. 
It will go out of business if abortion becomes unthinkable. And one of the ways is dollars supporting these 3,000 frontline, loving, caring ministries around the country. So, very practically, here's what you're going to see when you go out. What is this? Tell me what this is. This is a baby bottle. Well, it is not a baby bottle. It's a bank. And inside is an explanation of what to do with the money that you put in here. By the end of February, have it filled with your loose change. Get your kids to put something in and you put something in. And then at the end of February, we'll take them up. So there's a very concrete reminder. Put it on the kitchen table. Maybe keep doing it all year long. Get another one and keep praying for those frontline ministries that need our funding. So we as a church support them, but I want you as individuals to support them as well. So that's a concrete money thing that you can do when you leave. Third, be involved in spreading truth with good literature. My wife and I got in the mail a few weeks ago, I think it was even last fall, this paper. It's called The Silent Epidemic. It's a very provocative, gross color on the front with uh, masks on there. This is produced by the Human Life Alliance over in St. Paul. It is not explicitly Christian and clearly not non-Christian. And it is, in my mind, at the pre-evangelism stage of truth-sharing, one of the most varied, diverse, effective ways of addressing every single aspect of abortion in a sensitive, straight-up way. These are made mainly for college campuses. We're going to give you these when you leave. You may get a sample one. We have 2,000 of them. I was so impressed with this, I thought, well, why don't people just buy these and figure out systematic ways of distributing them because they are such an effective educational Tool. So if you feel like at your office or someplace, uh, this kind of pre-evangelism awareness of all that goes into abortion and life, get that when you leave. Fourth, direct involvement of various kinds. Make your presence known at the abortion clinics, writing, phoning, talking, visiting, um, volunteer at the crisis pregnancy Center. We're going to give this money, by the way, to the New Life Family Services, who have numerous settings, and the one we're going to support is the University of Minnesota Campus Clinic. It's not too far north from the the uh, McDonald's over in Dinkytown. So if you wonder, what are you going to do with this money? It's going to go to New Life Family Services, and specifically the one that is targeting the women who might find themselves in distressing pregnancies at the university. Dream a dream of your own. And lastly, pray. And I'll simply stress reading again, because I don't know about you, but if I am not reading about this issue, it goes out of my mind. And so be reading uh, John Enzer's book and stay on the websites that you might find helpful. Let's close with this. Remember, at one time you were darkness and now you are light in the Lord. 
Walk as children of the light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And remember, I declare to you in this name, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins. In him, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified in the law of Moses.